0: Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Here we are again, again, sitting around this table after Helen, no sleep. Finbar no sleep. Four hours. Glenn. Half an hour. Me, no sleep. The catchphrase for this podcast when we started was Corbin exclamation mark. Brexit! Exclamation mark! Trump! Exclamation mark! I was thinking recently we should update that, and it turns out we don't need to update that. Corbyn, Brexit, Trump—that's our world. So we're going to try and make sense of this. I partly tried to sleep and couldn't sleep because I was thinking of all the things that I've said in the last two years or written that now look a bit foolish about the Labour Party, including the one I think I'm most ashamed of, in which I wrote that the Labour Party was suffering death by enthusiasm, which doesn't look right now. Glenn's nodding at me. Although Glenn, I think the five-year fixed-term parliament act is still important I agree something I think we were collectively wrong about but this is not doesn't need a massive sort of self-flagellation because it looks like everyone missed this or almost everyone missed this so we did a podcast maybe a month ago about UKIP we call the meaning of UKIP and I said on that and I think it was a general view that it looks like one of UKIP's roles was to turn Labour voters into Tory voters And if you look at the results last night, there are two things and we'll come on to the university town student youth vote bit in a minute. That's less surprising. What clearly happened is that UKIP sort of persuaded the Tory party that they were turning Labour voters into Tory voters. And then half did go that way. But they were probably Tories anyway. But a lot of Labour voters went back to Labour. Do we have a clear sense of how that was achieved by the Labour party?
1: Well, I think, in one sense, it's it's not so complicated in that, I think, as we've said before, that what the Labour leadership chose to do against a, a lot of advice from the Liberal Chatterati, or the Labour left, Liberal Labour Chatterati, I should say, was to take a position on Brexit that sounded somewhat different than the Conservatives' position, but actually, aside from some nuances on the customs union, is pretty much identical to the Conservatives' position. And in doing so, allowed people who were both Leavers, so the UKIP vote, and Remainers both to vote Labour. And they have, you know, reaped the reward for that. And I think one of the things that was said, you know, back in 2015, including amongst the then Labour leadership and his team, was is that Labour did not have to worry about the rise in UKIP then, that that was a problem for the Conservatives, that actually the rise in UKIP was a good thing from Labour's point of view. Well, actually, that turned out to be completely wrong. The rise in UKIP was a problematic thing from Labour's point of view. You might even say it's possible that Labour could have won the last election if it weren't for the rise of UKIP or it hadn't lost those working class concerned about immigration, let's call them that, an anti-EU voters to, to UKIP in the first place. But the
0: demise of UKIP has been great for Labour, not just because they've reaped the rewards, yeah. but because the Conservative Party fell into the trap that we fell into. I mean, there's no way Theresa May would have called this election unless she believed that UKIP voters had essentially flipped Labour voters into Tories.
2: But of course, there are so many people, especially in the northeast of England, especially where I come from originally, who just cannot vote Conservative. There is still that legacy of people who will say, I'm happy to not vote Labour, but I will never vote Conservative. And they are the people who will vote UKIP and they did in, in the northeast, to significant numbers in previous elections. And they, but, but it looks like they, they, they
0: did back. vote Labour. It's not that they did, because if those people had sat at home and then the other UKIP supporters had voted Tory, exactly, she would now be sitting on a majority. There was, again, it's so easy with hindsight to, to not say, why didn't we pay more attention to this? There was a lot of anecdotal evidence coming out of focus groups. that As we got nearer to polling day, traditional Labour voters, many of whom had gone to UKIP, were saying whatever else they thought about Corbyn, whatever else they thought about May, they were finding it really hard to vote Conservative.
1: That is true. There's no doubt about that. But if you go back to what happened in Copeland and what happened in Stoke, which isn't that long ago, although it seems a very long time ago now, there you would say that there was evidence that some of those voters at least were We're transitioning transitioning to, to Labour. I think part of what's happened is is that you know we have been in a rather febrile political atmosphere, to put it mildly, and lots of questions about identity have come to the fore, and that it appears, and really this is you know speculation, that it became an election for a great number of people who voted Labour in the past, an expression of that identity that I think actually was disconnected to some extent from Corbyn, and that's how they were able to reconcile essentially pretty dismal view of Corbyn that to some extent changed, but I'm not sure it changed massively. With the act of voting Labour,
0: because it is extraordinary. It's not just that the polls, we should say, I mentioned them a couple of days ago. Our friends at YouGov, though their final poll put the gap quite wide. That poll two weeks ago that called the hung Parliament. And you know what we've got when we talked about it a couple of days ago. are four scenarios. We've got scenario one, pretty much to the letter, except that no one saw how far the SNP would fall. So when we talked about scenario one, we said. Tories three hundred ten, Labour two fifty. Well, it's Tories three twenty or nineteen. Mm-hmm. Labor two sixty because of these extra seats from Scotland. But the YouGov thing, extraordinary and brave piece of polling. But it's not just the polling. There are a series of real elections, by elections, the local elections, the favourability ratings of the party leaders as well as everything else, which just I mean it's an astonishing move in six weeks, not the collapse of the Tory vote because it didn't collapse they've polled at 43 you know I said ha 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 I would resign from whatever it is I do if they got less than 37 and there was about 10 seconds last <laughs> night where I thought what's the vote share um and then uh 43 as we said before it's kind of close to landslide territory on previous elections Blair and so on it's Labour polling 40.8 or something on the latest estimate from where they were in the local elections from where they were in the polls it's just astonishing
3: and it's going to be really hard because we're not even at the point where all the votes are counted so not all the seats are called yet I mean it's still that early in the morning and to try and disambiguate what we would say is the Labour voters going back to Labour because they couldn't in anyway vote for anybody else or did the campaign really matter because it's going to be one of the other things it clearly mattered yeah and so that moment where you say the tories held on to their vote relatively steadily throughout the campaign and then labour came
0: in a wave it feels like the campaign for once has really really mattered So, so i just want to say because i said it after trump and it's again it's that thing of with hindsight I always think, if, if in doubt, the number one rule in politics is something beats nothing. Mm-hmm. And this was a cl- in a campaign. Yeah. And this was a classic example of that. Same way with Trump. I could tell you what he stood for. I couldn't tell you what Hillary stood for. Totally, we can all say what Corbyn stands for. And not only was it quite hard, and it got harder as it went along to say what Theresa May stood for, but she called the bloody election. Mm-hmm. So she really needed an answer to that question more even than Hillary did. Though There were some resemblances there. This was a something, if ever there was a something, and of course, something didn't beat nothing because something lost, yeah. in a sense. We'll have to see as we speak. Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell are on telly saying they're going to transform a government, but nonetheless, 60 seats, roughly, or 58 difference. But boy, oh boy, did she not have an answer to the question, what?
1: And I think the, the, the place where this might really matter is is it once we get a bit clearer about what's happened, is, is this an election, essentially, in which... Labour has performed at 41% as well as it has done because a significant part of the Conservative vote has stayed at home. Because if you're back to 1997, what you get is a situation where Labour win a landslide, but actually they win fewer votes than John Major did for the Conservatives in 1992. Now, I've got no idea whether that's true or not. I'm just saying, is it possible that actually the Labour turnout is extremely high and Conservative turnout is not? Because if that is the case when we're thinking about the campaign, then the explanation of what's gone on might have something to do, not so much with the something that Labour offered, that explains the rise of the Labour vote, but the nothing that the Conservatives appear to offer, plus actually a confrontation with a court part of its vote over not only social care, but over winter fuel allowance and the triple pension lock, might simply have disaffected Conservative voters who weren't going to bring themselves to vote for Corbyn, certainly, probably didn't think there was any real risk of Corbyn coming in, so thought they could protest the Conservative Manifesto by staying at home.
2: At the moment, and we are still in those early early hours of the result, it looks like the number of Conservative votes went up, mm-hmm. even in constituencies in which there was a pro-Labour swing, which would indicate at least that it isn't abstentionism, it isn't staying at home. But it
1: could go up because of the UKIP. So yeah, of course, is, That's yeah, why I'd say it's quite difficult to unpack at the moment.
2: I mean, just coming back to an earlier point, I mean, I think it is worth recognising that, although it's easy to say that both parties lost in this situation, that both Conservative and Labour in some sense are neither of them won, both of them did get a very high proportion of the vote oh, yeah, and 43%, between, yeah, and 40% and a, percent, Between them, 85 84, which percent.
0: 84 yeah, yeah.
2: It, and, and in that context, the the extent to which they have substantial bases on which to prepare for what will follow this in subsequent campaigning is is really quite considerable right, Let's
0: come on, Let's just park the what will follow this just for a minute <laughs> before we start saying things that will also turn out not to be true <laughs> But the other thing that happened, we see it absolutely where we're sitting in Cambridge. I mean, a remarkable result in Cambridge, even two days ago, the, the thought was Labour was going to win here, but that it would be relatively close and it was a blowout. These extraordinary results in Canterbury, when the University of Kent is, a seat held since 1919, goes Labour. People like me have been saying to young people... <laughs> and you know it's not just me you know we all do it a bit if you want politicians to take you seriously you have to vote and now they have which is good for them bad for the politicians because the politicians it's much harder to ignore them and after all corbyn has now got were he to form a government i don't see how he can but were he to form a government maybe you know at some point quite soon and certainly at some point jeremy corbyn may well be forming a government in the next six months or year or whatever he's persuaded older voters in the north of england you near know, the classic dilemma of social democracy when it comes back. Older voters in the north of England and going to look after their pensions and everything else and he's offered good retail offer to the students. They did seem to like that retail offer of taking away their tuition fees. So the old story about British politics, which is it's kind of easy for the politicians because they just have to pay attention to the old people because the young people don't vote. It's really complicated it now.
1: I mean, the one thing that's sort of nagged away in my mind about what I've been saying about this election is the question of tuition fees. You know, if you go back to the 1990s. Essentially, both of the main parties decided to try to keep tuition fees out of democratic politics in this country. They had commissions. That's how the first tuition fees came in under the BLEG of whichever party won the 97 election. They were going to implement it. Blair essentially did do the rise to £3,000 by himself but caused himself actually considerable difficulty in doing so and then both parties were committed to the policy that became the coalition policy for all the problems that then caused Nick Clegg but both the Conservative and the Labour Party were both committed to that policy. That came unravelled at the 2015 election because Ed Miliband basically pushed Labour into a position of reducing the fees and now this time Labour's gone the whole hog and you might say it is vindicated from the point of view of the two main political parties as they were in the past the view that this is a thing best kept out of democratic politics. Now I'm not saying that justifies keeping out of democratic politics, quite the contrary, I actually think the students have got every reason to be angry about tuition fees and the intergenerational issues involved, but I think we can see something that actually was kept out and has now come in, and I think it probably has had quite profound consequences. Right, but, so, but
0: what's happened now is it's not out again. I mean, it's absolutely so essential. Because there's a huge it, difference absolutely. between know, removing there's, it and just not I know, letting absolutely. it in.
1: Absolutely, no, absolutely. And, uh, and that once the, the bipartisan consensus had broken down about that, um, and once essentially to use your language there, an offer had been made to the students, it's not surprising in this respect that they took it.
0: So is there going to be a problem for Labour all parties have to face this challenge. This is just a challenge of democratic politics. But the success that Labour has had, it is clearly a mix of young people, students, and also a kind of metropolitan vote, and then holding on in some of their traditional areas. And their manifesto did make quite a wide range of promises to quite a wide group of people. And it's been proved to be a good piece of politics. But We do now have to think about the possibility of a Corbyn-led government at some point. If I've changed in the last 12 hours, it's from thinking that Corbyn was not going to be prime minister. to now thinking we should prepare for the very serious possibility of Jeremy Corbyn being prime minister. And if he is prime minister, he's got many things to deal with, including this.
3: a while before the election, we were commenting that there were loads of fault lines that the Labour Party had to try and straddle. And they seem to have pulled it off by almost being the shortinger party. They can be in many states at one time. They can gain Remain votes in London. They can get Leave votes in the North. Can they continue to do that? If it goes from we are Labour voters or we are Remainers, etc. And we don't think that you're going to form the government, but we don't want the Tories to run off into the distance. If it comes to a point where, oh God, you really actually could be the government, can they sustain all of those dual positions across the country? I'm not
0: convinced that they can. I mean, the other part of it, though, and I'm not asking about what will happen, but just to make sense of what has happened, London, which started to move away from national vote patterns in 2010, when Gordon Brown, when he lost, he put on votes. The only two places he added votes were London and Scotland. Kind of weirdly, that's happened. Again, I mean, they've added votes in other places too, Cambridge, Canterbury, and so on. But London, it's another country now. It's a Labour city through and through, got a Labour mayor. But it's, very remain I mean it is I mean that's it's a never mind there's there's sort of student remainers but that remaininess seems less central other things maybe have taken students to thinking differently about politics and and how they might vote but London is clearly I mean unless I've missed it it's a remain city and Labour owns it
1: I think that that's partly true I think that the position's complicated in the sense that there's a difference between what goes on in inner London and what goes on in outer London Uh, and I think that the striking thing is not that you know Labour was able to run up you know like cricket schools in places like Hackney and um, Islington. Very big cricket schools (laughs) 35,000 that's a big cricket school. (laughs) Cricket schools Um, but that it was able to do as well as it did in outer London, and Ilford North being a, the place that is, I think, the, that was, probably the best example. Was that West, Street West and, Streetings? West yeah, Streetings. And also Ealing Central, I think, which was high up on the Conservatives' target list and that that they, they failed to take. I think, though, that the things that has happened is, is that at the beginning of the campaign the the story very much and I sort of picked this up in sort of talking to people um, in London not just the, the media narrative about it um, was is that London was going to be a problem for Labour and it was going to be a problem for Labour precisely because Corbyn's Labour Party is not committed to staying in the European Union that actually the people who seem most disillusioned with the Corbyn leadership in the Labour Party in relation to people who previously supported Corbyn, were the ones in London. And now they're running up you know, very big majorities for Labour. And I think there is a paradox there, and I don't think that quite saying that London's simply a Remain city really explains it. I think London's a Labour city, and I think that London's unaccommodated itself to Jeremy Corbyn.
0: This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman.
2: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
0: So let's talk about the Tories now. Again, I don't want to... Finbar's looking at me like, don't ask me. I'm not going to ask you to say what's (laughs) going to happen next. We've learnt that lesson. So, Finbar, what's (laughs) going (laughs) to happen? It's
3: going to be a minority government then another election in six months. So you could say, when we were talking
0: about... So we, we looked at our four scenarios. There was a moment where the fifth scenario of a Corbyn premiership loomed for about 20 minutes and then disappeared again. But it's certainly back on the table at some point. But we've got the first scenario we talked about a couple of days ago, which is, you know, as I said, I was talking to a senior civil servant and said, so how do you get a government? And she looked like you tell me. kind of. And this is almost the perfectly calibrated version of this, because if the Tories even got 10 fewer seats, then you can see quite quickly how any attempt to run a minority government falls apart quickly, but they're right on the edge. Uh, I, I'm looking now so it's going to be 318, 319
3: 7 Sinn Féin is that right? Uh, 7 Sinn Féin 10 DUP but Sinn Féin seats, seats. Yeah. so that
0: takes what you need so you need 322 two. so they're right on the edge Glenn who persuaded me that I shouldn't have been talking so much about the five year fixed term parliament act and now I think oh well let's come back again at least you know, politics goes around, goes around comes around it's at least possible it, it is again difficult to call an election And that probably would require a vote of no confidence rather than two thirds of MPs agreeing to one. And you have got a Conservative Party that can limp along. Possibly will require some kind of understanding with the DUP. But it could, you've got to assume the Tories are not keen to have another election, um, particularly with a new leader. It could, I I don't know enough about the DUP, frankly. It could last a while, something, I'm am not saying speculate what will happen but yeah, just yeah, yeah. logistically is there a Yeah. is there a way this thing the, carries on? The
3: DUP could basically say yes we're going to support you and that gives them enough breathing room to carry on.
0: What kind of things would the DUP want in return do you have any sense of that?
3: Oh good lord. Um no hard border with the republic. Um they think Brexit can be made a success of but they're very socially conservative so there is a position against Uh, abortion the woman's right to choose so there's a there's a strange collection of issues that they'd have to get their heads around and George Osborne
0: on tv last night kept saying please remember people the DUP are not a conservative party and this is the contrast with the Scottish
2: conservatives in particular who've taken a much more liberal stance under Ruth Davidson over the last couple of years keeping them on board as well as the DUP agenda is going to be very difficult in any
3: There's one interpretation of last night which says that the union is much, much stronger because there's no chance of a second independence referendum under those results, etc. And
0: we, and we basically agree with that, right? I mean, that's yep. one thing that is clear, that the IndyRef 2 looks remote, yep. gone.
3: However, keeping the Conservative Party in power and keeping everything ticking over now squeezes them between the DUP and the Scottish Conservatives. And how do you, how do you keep everybody happy in that version of the party? And all the while, tick-tock, tick-tock, here's Article 50... And we don't have the capability to turn it off. The European Union has the ability to turn it off. And so actually, I want a mandate, I want to go into this with a strong negotiating position. Now, we're in possibly the worst position, which is nobody's ready to negotiate. And the European Union could either say, we're going to be nice and we'll extend the period. Or they could be incredibly harsh and go, clock's running, sort your life's out
1: just to come back to that but there's a nice irony I think on the the democratic unionist question because if we go back to 1974 which seems to be earlier in the month my favorite election for making comparisons mm-hmm. with here the reason why Heath was unable to form a government was because in that after that election was because the Ulster unionists were no longer taking the the Conservative whip as they had done that was precipitated essentially by Enoch Powell's decisions Uh, Enoch Powell who helped Labour win that election through his position on the EU and now we've got the Conservatives looking to govern by making an arrangement with the democratic unionist so things do keep coming around
0: yeah no 1974 does look like the right one to pick but it definitely wasn't 1987 the one (laughs) I was saying the wobble turned out to be um, an understatement yeah Glenn do you think the alternative, so it's 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 that thing, whatever it is, as a immovable object and an unstable. I mean, it's just so hard to see how you get a government because the Tories don't want another election. They can limp along, but for the reasons from Barn Helen was saying, it looks it looks really not just unstable but fractured. But you put all the other parties together, and all of them turning up all the time and voting all the time, and the Tories can vote them down day after day. And so, for all of Jeremy Corbyn saying we were watching him just now, sort of almost by implication saying that not the British constitution, but the sort of sense of fair play means we fought the more positive campaign we should be given a chance. But the arithmetic does not work. The arithmetic doesn't work. Um, what does work
2: is the ability to keep blocking things. All they require is a couple of people from the other side to to rebel and they can block. And that I think will have to be their strategy. So we're close terms, to what Francis Fukuyama calls in America a and And that in some ways is what I think the Labour Party must be thinking about as its best strategy for making the Conservative leadership, however that looks, appear incompetent, incapable of running the country, incapable of forming a united faction that will be able to um, work effectively in politics, leading towards some sort of next
0: election. Because if this is some kind of ve- veto that being vetoocracy. In the American case, the, what makes it so entrenched is partisanship and the growing divide between the parties. So this looks like a very fluid election, very surprising, all sorts of things we didn't foresee happening, all of these famous people losing their seats, these weird swings going in all sorts of different ways. But you take a step back and you've got a country which is 43% Tory, forty forty one 41% Labour, big division between the metropolitan areas, all of the things that we would have expected. You know, Theresa May, it turns out, among her many, as we now can see, failings, was her metropolitan appeal was very, very limited. She's not a metropolitan politician, but she still has strong appeal in non-metropolitan parts of England in particular. Rather than this being a kind of moment of great fluidity where suddenly Labour could, from this new base, kind of make huge new advances, or maybe people look at Corbyn again and think, oh, he might be prime minister and sweep back. Is it possible that we are seeing the fundamental divides reasserting themselves and maybe even potentially they're going to be entrenched? This isn't just a sort of six-month thing we are a very divided country, London and the rest, metropolitan, non-metropolitan, Brexit remain, and that there's a sorting around the parties and actually that we are going to be more partisan in a unhealthy way in our politics. It's a big question to ask on No Sleep, but it must be possible. It,
1: I certainly think that it's possible, and there's obviously the intergenerational question as well. I mean, you could look at it one way and say that actually what Labour have managed to do is to mobilise most of the almost all of the anti-tory alliance in this country and that is a pretty big constituency
0: so you think they're bumping up possibly against the limits of where uh, they can go
1: uh, because there is also yeah.
0: this sort of i don't know Saritza model or something which is you get close and then quite a lot of people think oh we're allowed to give this a go but they, they
1: never got. i mean they're in a multi-party i know model, and it's totally multi- different but, but it's just that system, sort of i
0: think the, the, a sort of fresh face politician which corbyn in his way is that next time around a whole other group of people who wouldn't have considered him maybe do? I, I mean, I incline slightly more towards your view, but after all, say it is, you know, we're, we're moving back towards a time where 42, 43 percent of Tory, 42, 43 percent of Labour under our system, that would allow some movement. But Scotland is still, lots of it is still SNP. And that's a block, then that gives you what we have here.
1: Well, that's kind of, though, What if we go back to the 1970s, what happened after 1974 is is that you have two elections that year. Then you have a, a Labour government that loses its majority some way through the Parliament. Uh, it then stitches up an arrangement with the with the Liberals. It then effectively relies on the nationalist parties for supply and confidence, and it then loses that. And then of Ruth the Davidson comes along and rules for
0: 15 yeah, years. Yeah, and
1: it's just so easy. You've got most of the elements in place. Is that the two parties are essentially tied and Scottish nationalism, in particular more than Welsh nationalism, is an important part of what of what then unfolds after that, and it's broken by the surprising victory in some respects of Mrs Thatcher's Conservative Party in nineteen seventy nine I say surprising not because of the Conservative Party winning given the winter of discontent, but the fact that Mrs. Thatcher was then a rather unpopular politician. I think I'm right in saying that I think that she's the only prime Minister who's won a majority whilst being behind in the leader approval rating significantly at the point of that election. Who Mrs Thatcher is in this scenario, I I haven't got Mm -hmm. a clue. And as you were saying a (laughs) couple of days ago,
0: we have learned that these we love these 1970s analogies, but they don't really do much for people under the age of 40. And we did talk about Scenario 1, which is the one that we're in. It sounds like a sort of hangar in Nevada where they keep space aliens. But in Scenario 1, Chris was saying, he thought, Chris Brooke, that, you know, it would end up being Boris Johnson. You thought David Davis. Those seem to be the as a possibility. And, and although and Helen ask. told me just now that David Davis is being blamed for the decision to call the election.
2: Both of so many enemies in the party, yeah. in the Conservative Party, yeah. um, that that's surely a reason why some will be praying that Theresa can stay at it.
1: I think um, she should. She could try, and she, but you're going to have to reconstruct the cabinet. Uh, she's going to have to bring Michael Gove I would have thought back into proceedings yeah, I mean he
0: seems to me in some ways the big winner. Here.
1: Yeah, and she's going to have to widen her circle in circle she obviously um Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill reputations have been extraordinarily badly damaged particularly Nick Timothy's. Um I would say that's what, pretty politely. I think yeah. they're done. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> why well, what has happened. So she may be able to stay on simply because there isn't a plausible alternative and in one sense i think boris johnson is a is a plausible alternative it's going to be anybody i would suspect it was him but there are quite a number of people in the parliamentary conservative party who really do think open my dead body before boris johnson is a leader of the conservative party and so
0: if we finish with in a sense what we've learned about theresa may so i wrote an article about her a few months ago based on the biography of her talking about her you know i think people recognize aspects of her personality this kind of doggedness. this if you have a target she's going to see it through also that that ruthlessness the way she dealt with people like george osborne michael go but i also thought and this was at the time of her very high poll ratings that she wasn't particularly likable but that she had a quality where she seemed fairly straight with people and that i don't think people felt comfortable sort of with her as a person, but comfortable with her as prime minister, because she seemed sort of non-judgmental in a way. She was slightly closed off, but you you felt that she would give some respect back. That side of her over the course campaign did become more and more fragile and brittle. And Helen, I think you tweeted that an introvert in, in the extrovert world of politics, she was really struggling. And she did seem to shrink into herself. I mean, the, the nothing offer was partly because she almost lost confidence in what she was doing. Now, she's had the most massive, not just dent, but sort of full frontal assault to her confidence. And she is a relatively fragile person, I think, in some respects. I mean, she, you know, she's constructed a persona. It's, you know, it's encased her and it's got her this far, but it's really under strain. And just watching her last night, I'm not trying to get into the deep psychological speculation here, but it's really going to be tough. Not, not just the practicalities of it, not just getting legislation through Parliament, maybe she doesn't need to, maybe she can be one of those governments that don't legislate much, but just the day-to-day business of projecting enough confidence and authority. I'm not sure, but it. the last six weeks have been really hard for her, and last night she looked like she'd taken a big hit.
1: I agree. I mean, I think she'll do better, actually, for six weeks of trying to be Prime Minister. She can be Prime Minister for six weeks than six weeks of campaigning, because I think that this is where her introversion will have been psychologically extremely draining for her, because she simply will have drained energy away from her. I think what in part has happened in the campaign is, is that the people in the Conservative Party who didn't like her, and there were a lot of people at the beginning when she became leader who really um, didn't like her, were prepared to swallow her because they thought that she was successful and that she was taking them to political spaces and that they weren't going to get and they hadn't gotten under David Cameron. But as soon as that she started making mistakes, then they've turned on her with some fury. And I think you can see a certain kind of... Metropolitan Conservative politician and court politicians use the language I've sometimes used in this campaign. Court versus country. Yeah, who find her just a complete and utter anathema and now have reasons why they think that the things that they find a complete and utter anathema about her are reasons that explain what they will see now as her catastrophic failure.
0: And the trouble also with the failure is that she personally does own it. I mean, there's no getting away from it. It will be the thing that defines her not just for the rest of her career, for the rest of her life.
3: It's striking that the language went from I and my to our and we and party overnight. The campaign was all, this is my manifesto. The conversations over the last 12 hours have been
0: we. And in in Cambridge, there was very little Tory leafleting, but I got a few right towards the end. Obviously it had been printed at the start of the campaign, standing with Theresa May. You get that through your letterbox 48 hours ago and it just looked completely off because <laughs> it just you just thought this was they're you know, like giving me pieces of sort of hubris
1: i still think somewhat in her defense there are certain of those seats that were won in the midlands of the few that were won in a place like mansfield where it's very difficult to see how any other tory leader could possibly have won that seat so if the Tories ditch ditcher for boris johnson they can't necessarily hold on to what they've got they may get some of what they've lost back again but there will be also a price to pay for it. And in that sense, this is, you know, for a long time, the narrative about the Conservatives being divided in British politics was about the EU, but now they look divided in this way, on the, along this metropolitan country line.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary. Even 24 hours ago, the Labour Party looked like the party whose divisions were the ones that were going to be potentially fatal, and it just takes 24 hours, and suddenly you've got a party that, for now, has come together and you've got one that's really fractured. The problem for Theresa May within the Conservative Party,
2: it wasn't just a failure at election, it was a failure of judgment by her in calling the election, the unnecessary election. And when you've made a failure of judgment of that sort, the ability to then reassure people that your judgment is actually sound is so much more difficult. I'm
1: not sure it was a mistake to call the election. It was a mistake, the the strategy for trying to win the election, and the gamble that she took with the manifesto, I think, is the, and the U-turn is a mistake. Because... If it had been a mistake to call the election in the first place, you would have seen, I think, a much stronger negative reaction early on. And instead, you were seeing, you know, Conservatives at 50% in the polls, a very successful local election thing that happened actually in the campaign itself. The the point where things almost, you know, over a 48-hour period went wrong for her was the manifesto through to the U-turn on the social care and the way that she handled that.
0: Okay, we're going to have to stop because we could go on and on. I don't think anything has changed while we've been talking Yep. the latest headline says labor wins big in student areas i think we knew that so we will be back in our regular slot on wednesday and then we will know i presume some more but maybe not a lot more because this is the impasse this is the impasse that the senior civil servants were sort of shrugging their shoulders and saying yeah your guess is as good as mine so we will see politics doesn't get any less interesting though it is quite challenging especially when we sometimes have to admit that we're wrong and we must try to remember that it's so hard to know what's going to happen next so join us again next week to find out a little bit about that my name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics
1: okay to find out a
0: little
2: bit more about what we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was hosting a gathering in um, around a television in Trinity with four people. Um, one of them was reading out tweets from Helen every few minutes. <laughs> Saying, um, It <"Miracle-per>, <laughs> was quite funny for a while. Um, at about 2.30 in the morning it got a little bit tiresome, But but there you go.
1: Sorry?
2: You Helen? No. no, 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 not Helen. The, the reading of Helen's tweets got
3: tiresome. There's a
2: difference well, that's there. Sort of, uh, An important Helen's difference. We can make it a tradition, though. Every election,
3: Helen's tweets need to be better. And when you say every election, you mean... <laughs> I mean again, six in six months, exactly. in 12 months. <laughs> exactly. The November
0: election.
3: So, so I can't remember. It was Jim Pickard from the FT said, we're now under Moore's law for elections. Right. That the time to the next election is having every time. Yeah. So pretty much we'll be having elections every day. And there was a good
0: bit with Margaret Beckett. Did you see that no, one? No, well, They it. said to her, so first of all, they said to her, You said that when I nominated Jeremy Corbyn, that it made me the biggest moron ever. And she just sort of smiled or whatever. And then they said, What do you think is going to happen next? She said, Well, when my husband and I were packing away all our election gear, he said, Leave it at the top of the garage because we might be getting it out <laughs> again. <laughs> Quaint I image.
1: I know. Mm-hmm. Still seem to be acquiring Twitter followers. <laughs> oh the
2: Cambridge academic who teaches British politics and says she knows nothing about I don't British, politics. British politics. I don't teach British politics. I can't say, well.
1: say that. On my I know. I know. <laughs> no, I was actually so you haven't done. I
0: told you that guy from Princeton. Who, when I saw him the day after Trump won in Germany, he said he just told his politics 101 class to go to the dean and ask for their money back because clearly <laughs> he
1: knew nothing. Yeah. I
0: you know. You haven't. Nothing. That's a miracle. But you haven't gone that far. <laughs>